sci-fi, old-time radio, science fiction stories from RelicRadio.com. Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. This is Michael Hansen with a MindWeb story from New Worlds Quarterly Number 3 which was edited by Michael Moorcock. This is The Machine in Shaft 10, written by Joyce Churchill. Although I was later to become intimately involved with Professor Nicholas Bruton in the final fatal events at the base of Shaft 10, I was prevented by a series of personal disasters from taking much interest in the original announcement of his curious discovery at the center of the Earth. A copy of National Geographic containing the professor's immaculate geological proof for the presence of a, an emotion converter buried at the core of the planet lay unread in my desk for a month. And I'm ashamed to say the international scientific uproar precipitated by the sinking of the B series of exploratory shafts passed me by. One is morally entitled, I believe, to some life of one's own, even to the detriment of one's public self. I did, however, hear the end of a broadcast talk given by the professor soon after the appearance of the National Geographic article to an audience made up of interested parties from the English scientific community. I feel that Interested may not be the best word to use in this context. Their behavior was undignified and made listening rather difficult. Despite that, I found myself fascinated by his conclusions. What he said was this. Gentlemen, I can see no alternative to a radical readjustment of man's view of himself and his universe. I have shown, beyond doubt, I believe, that our emotions, subsequent to their processing at the core of the earth are converted to an essentially radiological energy and projected into space in the direction of the sun. 
We have no descriptive systems capable of dealing with whatever changes they effect there. We must, however, as my recently published work shows, view this as an artificial process. And more important, a process of very long-standing indeed. Gentlemen, we have no option but to assume that the joys and miseries of man are fuel for some gigantic cosmic machine that since our evolution as an emotion-bearing species, we have been used. That our most public triumphs and our most sordid personal tragedies may be the oil that runs the galactic bakery van. How does it feel, gentlemen, to, to be a resource? Well, my resignation from the cabinet had only recently come into effect. Finding it difficult to shake off old habits, I wondered how my ex-colleagues would react to the news. Fairburn took the government to the country and was promptly thrown out on his ear. Beyond that, I was unconcerned by the machine at the center of the earth until I received, in the July of that year, a visit from the professor himself. By then, of course, his work had been verified and his credibility as an investigator completely restored. Social and religious hysteria was at a peak. Fifty new administrations and a hundred novel creeds had sprung up during the week following Shaft 10's attainment of Machine Zero. Perhaps the most amazing feature of this whole affair was the speed at which a successful shaft was sunk. The few rational observers who remained in the world were left to reflect cynically that even when convinced of the true purpose of his ideological conflicts, emotional sumps in the growing terminology of the machine, man could find no more original method of expressing himself than to multiply them. Several small wars, dormant for some time, ramped over Southeast Asia and the Middle East with refreshed ferocity. I feared privately that the emotion converter would suffer an overload of faith and patriotism, triggering some immense metaphysical catastrophe as its capacitors exhausted themselves into the surrounding magma. A change had come about in the professor's attitude to his discovery. He was no longer interested in pure science, he explained as I ushered him into the study of my summer home at Lynn, but in something he called action I remember very few of the impressions I received at that first meeting. They're obscured by later images of him clothed and equipped for his descent of Shaft 10. I can recall being almost repelled by his physiology. He was a peculiarly small man with an immense sad head. I believe that earlier in his career he'd written a paper which offered some new light on the physical characteristics of Darwin, Da Vinci, and Socrates. All three of them were, it seems, less than five feet tall. And his features were bird-like to an exaggerated degree, too well-defined for the comfort of his friends and a gift to his enemies. Frankly, he told me, frankly, I've come to you for finance. And I found this surprising. I'd imagined that in his present commanding situation, he would have access to considerable finances as soon as he decided on a line of research that he felt worthwhile. He told me there are more important things than research. He looked down at his tiny blunt hands for a moment. We didn't deserve this, Ludkin. Any of us. He seemed to be uncomfortable with the sentiment. There is a way to stop it, though, you know, he went on quite defiantly. I'm sure you don't like living with that thing down there any more than I do. He was making the transition common in that decade, the... The fumbling shift from concern for abstracts to a more active involvement with the results of his work. 
When he refused to tell me the nature of the scheme he wished me to support, I politely but firmly refused to commit myself. But the vanity of the failed public figure, the half-conscious realization that if I helped him, I would retrieve my position as a substantial contributor to the mainstream of events, weakened my rejection severely. Two days later, he called again and left with my promise of limited support, seeming to be decided by myself, in exchange for an assurance that I would accompany him on any expedition to the center of the earth. At the end of July, my personal affairs adjusted themselves most equably, and my time being once more my own, I studied the news media daily. The professor had dropped sharply out of the public gaze, and I learned very little of him beyond that he had shut himself away somewhere in Cumberland, and refused to make comment even on the wealth of material being generated by the investigatory teams at the base of Shaft 10. Extant newsreel films of his retreat in Honiston Pass show a square stone cottage set among somber, desolate hills. Most of the news through August and the beginning of September was of a steady social and moral adjustment which can perhaps best be expressed in the decline of the authoritative religions. A complex front of druidic and neo-Mayan cults swept out of centers as widely dissimilar as Peach Valley, California and St. Anne's, Lancashire. All had basically apocalyptic premises and a solar orientation. But the religion of the decade began in Chile when a minor nihilist and political agitator named Cornelius persuaded 2,000 people to drown themselves in the Pacific Ocean. The Roman Catholic Church was the major casualty of this period. Cornelius's queer religion of despair spread rapidly across Latin America and later the world. Pope Pius declared him the Antichrist and was assassinated by a sensible Bolivian while blessing the crowd in Lima, Peru. Massive silent mobs gathered to hear Cornelius and his disciple announce that since man was incapable of independent action and decision-making, all that was left to him was to choose the manner of his own death as unemotionally as possible, thus depriving the machine of its raw materials. As I have said, I saw nothing of the professor, but in October he began to draw regularly on the Lloyd's account I had opened in his name, and he continued to make his presence felt in this manner until late December. I received one letter from him, hastily written in somewhat stilted tone. He was worried, he informed me, that local hysteria would prematurely end his preparations. Bands of armed agricultural workers were active in the area of Keswick, destroying machinery and isolated houses. Would I therefore authorize his purchase of a quantity of small arms so that his staff might protect themselves? D notices and a heavy security blanket then in effect prevented any public report of such guerrilla activity. I wasn't anxious to subscribe to any program of violence and asked Bruton if he could not finish his work in the South. There was a space of some days before he replied by telephone. I noticed immediately an alteration in the character of his voice, a side product I assumed of his successfully completing the transition I've mentioned above. He was adamant in his demand for the weapons, and I was duly presented with an invoice from a well-known private arms dealer. I felt nervous, but resigned. In January, almost a year after the discovery of the machine, I received a cryptic telegram dispatched from Keswick. Two days later, I was in train for Retford in Nottinghamshire and the head of Shaft 10. The B series of shafts had created their own microclimate, a result of the 
volcanic failure of shafts four through to six. Consequently, most of the county lacked the blanket of January snow that covered the rest of the Midlands, and over its flat, once productive beet fields hung a warm, oppressive mist. A small Vesuvian cone reared up from the site of the teacher training college disaster at Eton, East Redford. Classic basalt formations had inundated the colliery town of Worksop. Immense long chain protein molecules had been observed forming in the heated pools of waste chemicals discharged by the shaft projects among the suburban lava flows of Redford. Bruton telephoned soon after I'd booked into my hotel. He limited himself to rather brusque directions for finding shaft 10 and instructions as to the type of clothing I should wear. When I pressed him for further information, he resorted to obscurity. That was at approximately 10 o'clock in the evening. It seemed rather strange to me that we were to begin the descent almost at once. I ate a light meal, and to quell my growing nervousness about the coming incredible journey into the underworld, decided to walk to the head of the shaft. Faint volcanic flares lit the Ordsel Road as I went, and through breaks in the mist I could see electrical will-o'-the-wisps dancing around the summit of the Eden Cone. The service buildings for the shaft were located on the corpse of Ortsel Wood. A few remaining bitter trees were outlined against the massive precast concrete sheds that housed the shaft refrigeration turbines. In the darkness, the ground vibrated palpably. Subsonics from the deeper levels of the shaft itself trembled in my bones. I stood beyond the arc lights that surrounded the checkpoint gates, sweating in the heat of the nearest extractor outlet, amazed by man's ability to construct such enormous extensions of himself, despite the tyranny of his most basic psychological processes. Had we not been bred specifically as a power source for the emotion converter, what might we not have accomplished? Two large Land Rovers drew up behind me and disgorged the professor and his staff. At our first meeting, the watery-eyed scientist and Bruton Skull had been retreating under pressure from other elements of the man's personality. Now he had vanished completely, and the tiny figure standing before me, dressed in a closely-fitting black overall, was composed, self-assured, and powerful. The disproportion of his big avian head no longer invited caricature. It was still desperately ugly, but a tremendous change had occurred behind his eyes. He was carrying a light shoulder pack across which was strapped one of the machine pistols he had ordered in December. I was dismayed. I said, look here, Bruton, you, you don't need that thing. A glance at the dozen or so men who lounged on the vehicles behind him confirmed that they were similarly armed. Well, he said, I'm sorry, Lutkin, but things aren't quite what you've taken them to be. I should have explained. There never were any Luddites in Keswick. At least not while I was there, I'm sorry. It was an unpardonable deception. Here he shook his head apologetically, and I noticed that he was in need of a barber. He went on. But the only chance I had to get the stuff, no grants committee would have considered it. That's why I had to have you. You must do without me from now on, Professor. I was sick with anger. I turned my back on him and made to walk off in the direction of the town. He put a surprisingly powerful hand on my arm. I can't allow you to do that. Look, he told me. Look, Ludkin, I told you that there was a way to stop the thing, and there is. 
But did you seriously expect that I would be permitted to just go down and turn it off? Abruptly, I realized that he was correct. Millions of man-hours of international cooperation had gone into the sinking of the shafts. More important, the shaft projects were the sole still center in a political chaos. Without them, the tenuous unity achieved for the first time ever by the major powers would evaporate. Sensing an advantage, he went on. We deserve this chance, Lutkin. We deserve the opportunity to make our first gesture of independence since the Pliocene, to become self-determining at least as far as the limits that were originally built into us. Cornelius is right. That thing down there is bloody insufferable. We can't let it go on leeching. A curious pause. And then, whatever the repercussions... It was that peculiar choice of expression with its Miltonic implications of cosmic rebellion that convinced me then and which haunts me now. Bruton looked again at the head of Shaft 10 and when he spoke again there was such a wealth of bitterness and despair in his voice that I hated to imagine what sort of dreams he had lived with since his discovery of the nature of the machine. However, accidentally, he had impelled the human race to confront its own clown-like glorification of its metaphysical inferiority. And I think he felt the resultant terrifying sense of impotent rage more than anybody. Well, with any luck, he said, we've finished here. Man will have no place or purpose at all. We've lived too long with them. We deserve the dignity of pointlessness. You'll have seen the videotapes of our assault on the main gates, made automatically by the closed-circuit security system and retrieved later at great personal risk by Colonel C.R.S. Marsden of the Sherwood Foresters. Nothing would be accomplished by my adding to that record, although I would like to say that the so-called atrocities Thompson and Frost claimed to have detected on the poor-quality tapes from Camera 5 simply uh, did not take place. This is a deliberate slur on the professor's memory. We lost five men. Not two, as Frost has suggested recently, and left the remaining ten to hold the head of the shaft open for our retreat. The odd thing, Bruton said as he operated the mechanisms of the elevator and the pressure doors of the cage sealed themselves behind us. The odd thing is that I could have got in quite easily on my own. I'm well respected here, you see. But they wouldn't have let this in without an inspection. He had brought with him a heavy wooden crate, some three feet long by two square now, tapped it significantly. I could have got in quite easily without it. There was a tone of irony in his voice which repelled me, even though it did not stem from any callous trait of his. I stared at his parrot-like powder-burned face for some seconds, and he looked away. The descent was uneventful, and apart from Bruton's terse advice on the proper use of the various instruments of personal comfort installed in the lift cage, carried out in silence. If the vast humming and hissing of the shaft refrigeration can be termed silence. The atmosphere of the cage rapidly became hot and stifling. I found myself swallowing almost constantly to relieve the unpleasant sensation in my ears. None of the awe I had previously felt toward shaft 10 survived that journey. I don't know what I had expected, echoing fallopian tunnels recalling to my genetic memory the similar pre-womb excursion, perhaps. 
Or simply some side of the magma that boiled and roared around the shaft. Some sense, anyway, that this was a forbidding plutonium descent carried out at great and immediately visible risk. The reason for the professor's peculiar timing of the raid became apparent when we reached the complex of interconnecting vaults and passages that honeycombed the magma around the emotion converter and found them deserted. Machine Zero was a high cathedral vault, its organic plastic walls constructed to resonate in sympathy with the shifting phases of the machine cycle. Into this shivering, gently lit space we lugged Bruton's box. I had planned at this point in the narrative to introduce some illustrations of the more salient and enigmatic portions of the machine. But I find I'm unable to obtain copyright. Most of you will have at hand, however, at least one of the many colorful diagrams of the mapped areas that have appeared in the Sunday supplements. I find the Sunday Times photographic essay the most comprehensive and accurate of these. From Machine Zero, the professor and I move to the area usually labeled Induction Chamber. Frost persists in using the obsolete Platner notation primary capacitor. The area was later proved, of course, not to be a capacitor of any kind. By leaving the area through subsidiary fornices 6 and 7, we avoided the little understood lobes of material that choked the main archway. Achieving access point 3, we dragged our burden into the major staging vault which surrounded the heart of the machine. To find oneself standing a mere 80 feet, a higher figure may be given in some diagrams, from the exact geometric center of the earth is an exhilarating experience. The soft, fluctuating light that filled the vault lent the organic surfaces of the machine a delicate pastel tint and reflected dully from the huge, grape-like extrusions that had made their appearance on its walls after the sinking of Shaft 10, so that the whole thing resembled a giant alien fruit, ripe but marred by parasitic organisms. In operation, the converter generated a constant modal cord. For a moment I stood exultant, yet tranquilized, feeling for the first time the mystical thrill I had expected of my journey. But Bruton was inured to the effects of the machine. As soon as his box was put down, he prized open its lid and took from it several small gray blocks of a waxy substance, apparently plastic, various pieces of detonating apparatus, and a woodcutter's axe with a long, curved wooden shaft. He told me that I couldn't do anything here and might be more useful up on the surface. I said, well, allow me at least to stay until you go up. I was hurt that I'd been used as nothing more than a pack animal. He shrugged and took a firm grip on the axe and began to swing it against a spot on the machine he had been at some pains to locate. I could see no difference between it and the surrounding areas. He had soon cut a sizable hole in the rind of the converter and about a pound and a half of rose-tinted fleshy substance, dry and firm like the meat of a mushroom, lay on the floor of the chamber. Quickly, he packed explosive into the cavity, wired it up, and moved to another spot about five yards away to repeat the procedure. I experienced a peculiar dream-like curiosity as he worked and moved about the central vault, relaxed by its rosy hues. By the time he had finished mining at equal intervals around the circumference of the machine, I was deep in an examination of one of the tumors I've noted above, fascinated by the vein-like structures of a pale gold color that lay just beneath its surface. 
I heard a sharp metallic click behind me and turned to find Bruton pressing the full magazine into his machine pistol. And he said, Thanks for your help, Lutkin. It's time you went. I looked at the gun. Aren't you coming? And he shook his head. She'll be killed when it... He interrupted with a jerk of the machine gun barrel. You must get up there and tell them they have precisely 50 minutes to get clear out of the head of the shaft and begin the evacuation of the town. I've allowed a small margin of error, but it would not be wise to let them know that. There will be a good deal of volcanism. Tell whoever is in charge up there now that if you or any of my staff who are still alive are uninjured, or if they send anyone down the shaft, I will simply bypass the time fuse and detonate the stuff at once. I asked him, why are you doing this? I could not understand him at the time. I left him under the threat of the gun. I cannot say whether he really intended to shoot me if I refused to leave him. But I didn't leave because of the gun, and he knew that. By the time I had reached the access point of the chamber, he had put it down and lost all interest in it. And I called him, Professor, Professor, don't be silly. He pretended not to hear my last glimpse of him was as a tiny, madly whirling figure swinging the axe again and again into the flesh of the emotion converter. His long white hair was damp with sweat, and on his pitiful, ugly face was an expression of what I can only describe as methodical ferocity. Since he had finished the work of mining, I could see no reason for that action. I realize now that he hated the machine, which seems paradoxical. The events that followed my return to the service are public knowledge. The professor's prediction of volcanic disturbances was more than borne out. But thanks to the untiring efforts of Colonel Marsden, who had arrived with the foresters shortly after our attack on the gates, we got out of the shaft ten buildings in advance of the plastique explosion and managed to move half the inhabitants of Retford before the greater explosion of the machine itself drowned the town under a lake of lava. For many days, Shaft 10 flung thousands of megatons of magma into the air every hour. And the crash evacuation of what is now the Nottingham Lava Plain was only partially successful. My present position of trust came about largely as a result of a mistake on the part of Colonel Marsden. He was quite uninterested in politics, devoted to his career, and had forgotten that I no longer had a place in the house. My appearance at the head of Shaft 10 led him to think that I'd been engaged in some official attempt to dissuade the professor from his anarchic attack on the machine. He told me negotiation never works with buggers like that, sir. I see no point in hiding the true reason for my presence there. The massive public support for the professor's act of defiance that has risen in the last year leads me to believe that the electorate will regard my honest admission with sympathy. The human race is now, as the professor wished, entirely devoid of purpose. Recruitments to Cornelius's faith have fallen off recently, which seems to suggest that the survivors of his global suicide program, partly realized during the hysteria which swept the world soon after the Redford eruption, are aware of the self-contradiction implicit in its creed. An ideology of despair is as emotional as any other. Lately, I discover myself giving more and more attention to Bruton's words at the head of Shaft 10. I envisage the entire nation, indeed the entire human race, waiting 
unrepentant for whatever reprisals the builders of the machine may initiate. We have no meaning, and thus, thankfully, no more illusions left to lose. The story you've just heard is titled The Machine and Shaft 10, written by Joyce Churchill. It appears in New World's Quarterly Number 3, edited by Michael Moorcock. This is Michael Hansen speaking. Technical production for Mindwebs by Leslie Hilsenhoff. Mindwebs is a production of WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension.